Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talk's TV and movie show. This week on the show, Barbie and Oppenheimer. Two massive releases of the week and indeed the summer. And we take a deep dive into them both and tell you if they live up to all the hype. Actors in Hollywood have downed tools and it looks like they're not picking them up anytime soon. We get the latest on the actor strike. Plus, Ross Whitaker on his great new documentary, The Row Down Under, which details the emotional journey of the Irish women's soccer team to this week's World Cup. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on Newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm here on Newstalk. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Fardy, or you can email me screentime at Newstalk.com. Good weekend to you all, my friends. Thank you for tuning in. Now, I'm going to get straight down to it this week because there's lots to discuss and I'm going to do things slightly differently. I usually start with the week's television, but I think the week that's in it, we need to get to cinematic matters straight away. Now, if you even have a passing interest in the cinema, you will undoubtedly know that there are two massive releases this Friday in cinemas. Oppenheimer, which tells the story of the aforementioned Oppenheimer who, well, designed the first nuclear bomb, certainly in part. And also Barbie, a movie that is getting an incredible amount of uh, promotion, let's say. Even my children seem aware of it. So, to make sense of both those movies, which I have seen, I'm joined by our regular reviewer, arts critic and film reviewer, Chris Wasser. Chris, hello. John, how are you? I have to tell you the irony I experienced last Wednesday when I went to watch a movie about a man harnessing power and energy and there was a power cut in the IFI all along oh, Dane no. Street so a three hour movie turned into a four hour experience so there you go you'll, you'll appreciate that uh, <laughs> but that said I did enjoy Oppenheimer very much now it's a long movie it's three hours as I've just mentioned but can you give people a kind of potted sense of of what aspect of the Oppenheimer story this movie's looking at yeah do you know what it's quite interesting that Emily Blunt one of the stars of the films um, has been talking about uh, plot wise how Oppenheimer how Nolan has essentially Trojan horsed a biopic into a thriller and I think that's a great way of putting it because mm. you know that you're not with Nolan, anytime if, if if he's working with a fictional tale, if he's working with uh, something fact based, you're never going to get a straightforward linear cradle to grave film. It's not that that's just not what Nolan is about. He is going to you know inject his imagination into you know a historical tale. Um, so it is you know in parts a biopic. We do you know see. Oppenheimer in his university days struggling you know this is J. Robert Oppenheimer this is a theoretical physicist in the lab he wasn't much use he was always quite anxious he was quite nervous we see him you know studying and kind of being mocked by by his professors but we're also then 20-30 years later at these security hearings so we're post Manhattan Project so Nolan is kind of messing with time but look I'll straighten things out for listeners all you need to know is that you know this is the story of how Oppenheimer was you know uh, a key component in the Manhattan Project when you know the US government set about creating the first nuclear bomb before you know the Nazis could um, and Oppenheimer was put in charge of this project and yes he was a theoretical physicist so he was the kind of the, he was the man you know at the chalkboard while the scientists in the other room actually built this bomb and as I said we see him in his university 
university days, we see that, you know, he's a brilliant but also tortured mind. We see him as a family man. We see him as a bit of a drinker and a womanizer too. And then the other side of this film is what happened after Hiroshima, after Nagasaki, when this bomb was dropped in Japan and the devastating consequences. And also, you know, the security hearings that were held in the 1950s when the US government started to get a little bit touchy about the fact that in his younger years, Oppenheimer had, you know, affiliations with the Communist Party USA. So there's an awful lot going on there. The story of Oppenheimer as told, the only way that Chris Nolan knows how, in a very complicated way. Yeah, and those, uh, when he's before that committee in the 50s, that's told in tandem with the rest yes. of the story when they're getting ready for the Manhattan Project. Okay, well, that's a that's a great synopsis of what is a, a spiralling story. Now, because I've seen this, don't worry, I'm going to let you talk, but I thought one of the great strengths of the movie was we have that very complicated story with different strains happening, yet... I was pretty much gripped for the three hours, the power cut notwithstanding. <laughs> um, so was I. Yeah, it is extraordinarily intense. Do you know what? I think maybe I could have done with the break uh, at the screening that I attended. Um, but saying that, I'm quite looking forward to seeing it again. And this is, mm. the, I think that's the greatest trick that, that, that Chris Nolan uh, 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 plays with his films, that he's hitting you, you know, his films are an assault on the senses and he's hitting you with so much in terms of dialogue and sound and visuals that it's almost impossible to take everything in. Um, so even while you're watching it the first time, you're thinking, well, I'm going to have to go to this again. Mm. Uh, but yeah, nothing about it is straightforward. And I was reminded at times of how, before I remember reading that before Chris Nolan made Dunkirk, which is one of my favorite Chris Nolan films, um, he asked Steven Spielberg for advice, uh, you know, because Spielberg would have made Saber Private Ryan. He knows a thing or two about making war films. And Spielberg had said to him, history first, research first, you know, imagination mm -hmm. second, third, whatever, you know, but prioritize, you know, the facts. And he did that. But he also, again, in true Nolan fashion, you know, he applied his own sense of style and there was revolving time, you know, there was a story in, on land, on sea, on air. One of them was a week, one of them was a day, one of them was an hour, but they all played out at the same time. So he was completely messing with our minds and Oppenheimer and, and with Oppenheimer, he's doing that again because while he's telling the story of Oppenheimer and while we're seeing things that really happened, one scene might be in black and white and another is in color. The black and white stuff we're told is, you know, this is objective. This stuff really happened. You know, there were people mm. in this room who can tell us the conversations that happened here. The stuff in color, well, we know the general outline, but we're kind of just, you know, taking, you know, artistic license. And we're also trying our best to tell it from Oppenheimer's point of view. And then keeping in line with that again, sometimes we're inside Oppenheimer's head and we're seeing, you know, these just these surreal depictions of a quantum realm and also waves of energy. And these kind of represent the real anxieties that Oppenheimer was feeling at the time, because although he signed on to this project, you know, although he was, although he was doing this extraordinary thing for his country, you know, to build a bomb before anyone else could, maybe halfway through, maybe after the, the, the bombs were dropped, he develops a conscience and he realizes mm. this is going to change the world and not in a good way. And we see then, you know, we see the Oppenheimer in the, in the, in the final third of the, in, of, of this film, the Oppenheimer who was struggling to, you know, live with that. He was just yeah. racked with guilt and he goes from being you know the chap you know the the, the 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 hero of this moment in world war ii to someone who just can't sit easy for the rest of his life so there's an awful lot going on in there john yeah and look that gets to what i think is one of the heart well can you have more than one heart but the heart of the matter <laughs> yeah. in that uh killian murphy's performance 
is incredible because because as you're talking there throughout a lot of the movie i couldn't figure out what what i thought of him you know at times he's a womanizer and he's not nice to the people around him at other times he's deeply convicted about this you know world ending thing he's helped create he is incredible in it you can't take your eyes off him you you follow him around the screen you want to know where he's going next and what's going to occur to him next the way he could be so troubled at times and yet so seemingly confident it's i don't know i think it might be killian murphy's greatest performance i wonder how you feel about it oh it's a career best moment and although it's you know it's far too early to be talking about these things. I would be shocked and surprised if there wasn't an, an Oscar nomination in this for, yeah. for, for, for Killian Murphy, which would be his first and also he would deserve it. Um, yeah, I like the way Nolan presents Oppenheimer, uh, the person, you know, in a very complicated way that, you know, look, here he is womanizing and here he is, you know, um, being unfaithful to his wife and keeping things from his friends and just not communicating with people and just being sometimes a bit of an asshole. And then, and, then, and, and that's almost like, and then here he is, you know, uh, you know trying to protect this country and here he is trying to do the good thing and that's like nolan saying look this man did something extraordinary and nolan has described him as the most important person that ever lived not too sure about that but um but what he does but but he he contributed to something that will you know likely one day john blow up our world so he's mm. not an easy person to like and he's you know it's 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 he's a man that we we can just never get get behind fully but and that we have conflicted feelings about yeah. morphe understands all of that and i think he understands that unlike say matt damon and other performers in this film it's not enough then to just like deliver this kind of you know loud grandstanding performance you can't you can't you have to get into that mindset of what it must have felt like to be this person and I think he nails it because yeah. I mentioned Matt Damon there. The whole time you're watching Matt Damon, he plays a U.S. general who's the director of the Manhattan Project. He is giving a performance. You can see him acting. You can mm. hear it. And it's very over the top. And it works. And that's effective. But what Murphy's doing is something else. And he kind of just slowly, steadily, and in a very natural way, kind of just tears down those walls between the performer and the character. So much so that... Although I must admit, Oppenheimer is not a man that I would think about quite a lot. Whenever I, I know now, whenever I think about Oppenheimer, all I'll see is Killian Murphy, and that yeah. that is that is what an effective performance. That's how effective this performance is. It's it's something else. Yeah, absolutely. And I was not not surprised, but I thought Robert Downey Jr. as the guy who hires him and yeah. then ends up taking pot shots at him in the fifties was was brilliant uh, as as a kind of weaseling po politico kind of guy. Yeah, you forget he can do that, don't you? I mean, yeah. he's just been playing. He's been playing the same character. Too many Doctor Doolittle's yeah. for a while. Yeah, Doctor Doolittle. You know, uh, various different. You know, too many different variations on Tony Stark. Uh, what an incredible performance. Um, you know, it is. It's again, it's something quite natural. And also, the amount of screen time that Robert Downey Jr. gets. There are so many moments in this film where you're thinking to yourself, oh my God, that's that's Gary Oldman. Wow, yeah. okay, that's, uh, you, you know, there, there's Casey yeah. Affleck. There's an awful lot of different, yeah. you know, very famous performers popping up and they've all got very small parts. But Danny Jr. is actually in an awful lot of this thing. Yeah. I think I should say though, the women in this film, they're not very well served, John. Yeah, they're they're a bit underwritten and they're almost like, you know, launching boards for the men. And I don't mean yeah. that in any funny way. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And I mean, Florence Pugh, she is good when she's there, but but the character and, and then so also his his wife, uh, who's played again by uh, Emily Blunt, Emily Blunt, of course. Yeah, kind of just a, a, a two-dimensional character. So yeah. I, I agree with you in that. Listen, we have to get to another movie, but there are many set pieces in this, and I don't want to give any spoilers, but when they test the bomb in the desert, 
that sequence, that whole build up and how that plays out. That stood out for me as, as one of the many brilliant moments in it. And, and you're left thinking with the feeling maybe outside of Spielberg, could anyone else capture it like, like Nolan did? No, I don't think so. It is extraordinarily intense. Uh, you know, on you know, in line with uh, some of the, the 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 more frightening scenes from Dunkirk, um, and and we know as well that he's not going to. It's been weird. All the jokes in the run up to this film release, John, where people were th- where people were saying, "Do you think Nolan will actually you know activate a nuclear bomb because he doesn't want to use CGI?" I don't know how he did it, but through you know. Terrific performances, wonderful cinematography, practical effects, you know, using real bombs, but not nuclear bombs and the minimum CGI. He's created something that was extraordinarily effective. You don't actually see, you know, he, he turns away from Hiroshima and from Nagasaki. We don't see that where everything, mm. hap- everything that happens in this film happens before that and then after it. But that build up to that Trinity test is the most tense I've been in cinemas. It's it's the most tense I've been in cinemas when I haven't been watching a Tom Cruise film this year. <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's very frightening. It's quite realistic. And also just that you, you can feel the panic as well from the characters. I love that sequence where Matt Damon's general asks Oppenheimer, when we push that button, is there a chance we might blow up the world? Like, like how, how big will this explosion be? And Oppenheimer says, we don't know. Yeah, yeah. This is this is an error away from conducting this test, and this is actually what happens. So yeah, mm. this film, like Dunkirk before, it somehow manages to capture and convey, you know, the terror and the anxiety and the panic that you know, uh, you know, involved in in every aspect of World War Two in a way that I don't think any other film has done before. So it's a, yeah. it's a hell of an achievement. Spine tinglingly dense yeah. and just great, great filmmaking. So look, what would you say, stars wise, for Oppenheimer? I think four out of five. Uh, mm. Yeah, it is an extraordinary piece of filmmaking. Flawed, definitely. You know, as I said, you know, the uh, the females in this film are underserved. Um, sometimes, you know, I did wonder if that runtime was necessary. And, and also, you know, can I just be funny about this? Sometimes I just wanted them to explain the science a bit more, John. Like, I, <laughs> yeah. I was just thinking, how exactly did we get from the chalkboard to the bomb just yeah. you know even even just give me a simple you know uh, uh one liner just just try and explain it to me but then you know maybe i'll be giving out about too much too much exposition so i think four does yeah i know what you mean about the science there was a lack of exposition but but yeah. that's it's it's hard to do theoretical physics and quantum <laughs> mechanics on screen i obviously would have understood it all but you would have struggled but that's listen true. i'm going to give it a four out of five as well because I, I i really enjoyed it i was gripped the whole time i didn't check my watch i you know the power cut as i say notwithstanding and and funny the three hours uh it it it, it kind of rolled by or or certainly didn't bother me you know in the way that it the longness of tenet which we won't get into now which no. I, was, I was disappointed <laughs> by and i know you were too but look that is four out of five from both me and chris wasser for oppenheimer which is in cinemas this friday the 21st of july so i would go and see it in the cinema and chris would argue the same now something very different is this Oh, looks like this beach was a little too much beach for you, Ken. If I wasn't severely injured, I would beat you off right now, Ken. I'll beat you off with you any day, Ken. Hold my ice cream, Ken. All right, Ken, you're on. Let's beat you off. Anyone who wants to beat him off has to beat me off first. I will beat both of you off at the same time. But you don't even know how to beat yourself off. How are you going to beat oh, both of us off? It doesn't make sense. Why are you beat yourself off? You're going to beat both of us off? Nobody's going to beat anyone off. 
Now, there you heard Ryan Gosling and, of course, Margot Robbie in perhaps the most talked about or certainly promoted movie of the year. And that is Barbie with Margot Robbie playing the eponymous Barbie. Chris, uh, what's going on in Barbie? It's not a sentence you utter that often. But... <laughs> um, I think the question is what isn't going on in Barbie. But uh, we begin in a plastic world, John. And Helen Mirren, who's the narrator, that was a surprise for me. Um, she mm. tells us that in Barbie land, which is where we are, the matriarchy rules. Uh, every day is a perfect day for stereotypical Barbie. That's who Margot Robbie's playing. Yeah. And all of the Barbie. Sorry, you should that... say I've seen this one as well. So yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll weigh in, but you keep going. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to this discussion. Um, but all of the Barbies in Barbie land, they all have awesome jobs and they're all in control. You know, they're politicians, Nobel Prize winners, astronauts. But the Kens, you know, they kind of just hang out at the beach all day and look pretty and they rarely get a look in. And every, every one of the Kens in this film is okay with that, except for Gosling's Ken. You know, mm. he's in love with uh, stereotypical Barbie. He always wants to spend the night with Barbie, even though he doesn't really know what that means. And he's just, that that's his main concern. I just need to impress Barbie. Except one day, Barbie forgets all about her perfect life and starts to have a bit of anxiety and starts to experience an existential crisis. And she just starts to kind of contemplate her mortality, which is not mm. something you'd expect from, you know, a toy. Um, so the other Barbies are horrified and it gets worse because, you know, her fleece or her feet become flat. She discovers she has bad breath. Uh, her body is doing things that she doesn't want it to. So in order to kind of fix all this, well, you know, she thinks there might be a fix. She visits Weird Barbie, played by Kate McKinnon, who tells her that, yes, we are playthings. Little girls play with us in the real world, which does exist. And for reasons that we won't get into, John, Barbie, stereotypical Barbie that is, is going to have to venture to the real world with Ken in tow and try and figure out why she's feeling like this. So cue an epic voyage, you know, with yes. Ken. And we should just say, without giving any kind of spoiler, she will connect with a mother and daughter. America Ferreira plays a, a, a real-life mother who's struggling with her own daughter and struggling with, I suppose, issues that Barbie has when she enters the real world. Okay, so a lot has been made about this movie and a, a lot has been made of the fact that they've, in a way, attempted to turn Barbie, and maybe she always was, some argue, into a feminist icon. Uh like, I mean, on a, from a cinematic point of view, what did you make of this? I think there's an awful lot going on. And I think that I, it's, it's weird going into a film like this, having, you know, feeling as though it's it's the only film that anyone's been talking about for the last six months. And sometimes mm. it, 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 it has felt like that, John. You know, yeah. the, the, the press and marketing for this, the only reason that things have gone quiet this week is because of, you know, the, the Screen Actors Guild strike. Yeah. Uh, but before that we were just bombarded with, with, mm. you know, uh, press interviews, you know, everything turning pink. If you Google Barbie, the film right now, Google, you know, turns pink. Yeah. Um, and everyone was kind of telling us what they thought about this film before they'd actually seen it. Um, so finally getting to it, it's obviously not going to be as good as your ex expectations, you know, uh, it's, not, it's never going to be as good as you thought it was. Um, but my first thought after seeing it was that was a film full of ideas. You know, some of them mm -hmm. dizzying, some of them dazzling, some of them downright brilliant. But those ideas, although we have Noah Bambuk and, and first and foremost Greta Gerwig, you know, directing and co-writing, uh, you know, brilliant filmmakers, although we have those people in charge, the film doesn't really know what to do with them. And, and it mm -hmm. kind of just squishes all of these ideas and themes and concepts together without any regard for, like, what shape this film should take, you know, or what tone it should have. It's just a hundred different conversation starters, a hundred different punchlines, you know, a hundred different visuals all at once. And, and it's just, it's exhausting. Did you feel mm. like that at all? I, I'll tell you how I felt uh, to be precise. I really liked the opening 
salvo in Barbie world yeah. uh, where it's all so shiny and and the society's traditional role has been completely changed and women are presidents and all that kind of stuff and Margot Robbie is perfect Barbie and then we have other Barbies and weird Barbie and there's a Barbie in a wheelchair and I thought that was brilliantly done as this plastic kind of American Mickey Mouse not to mix up my analogies there world that was brilliantly done and I really liked the slow creeping existential dread that Barbie experienced yeah. and then goes into the real world. But then I thought it became a bit too muddled. Uh, now, I, I admire the kind of ambition of it and what they were trying to do. But I thought, like you, there was too many ideas going on. And I thought one of the ideas they're trying to get across and I'm completely for is that it's very hard to be a woman and at yeah. one point uh, America Ferreira's character gives this kind of monologue about the pressure on women in all strands of their lives and hallelujah to what she was saying but that there needs to be a movie and a narrative around that. And I thought it too many times there was these ideas, like you said, but they weren't wrapping it up in a compelling, interesting story enough of the time. Yeah. It's as though sometimes it forgot about its plot mm. or whatever the plot was supposed to be. I mean, I'm kind of thinking of Will Ferrell and Kate McKinnon here. So Will Ferrell plays, you know, the, uh, the, the greedy CEO of the real life Mattel and Kate McKinnon is the weird Barbie, this toy who's been played with a little bit too roughly, you know, she's got crayon marks all over her face and you know, she's, she's in a bad way. And that, that's a great idea. Um, but whenever they featured, they were just doing the same things that Will Ferrell and Kate McKinnon always do. You know, mm. Will Ferrell's just shouting his lines for effect. Kate McKinnon is always pulling weird faces. Um, whenever they were in it, this is, this is a conundrum because whenever they were in it, it looked like a Saturday Night Live sketch that got out of hand. But whenever yeah. <laughs> they were gone, the film didn't really have a purpose or a plot because they were the ones that gave it purpose and a plot. A yeah. bit, you know, Kate was explaining things. Will, Will was supposed to be the antagonist. So it's, it's a little bit, yeah, it's, it, it's a little bit lost. And also, I, it, muddled is, 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 is the right term for it because I just kept thinking, this film is just going round and round and mm. it's talking itself into so many corners. And, and in one scene, it's kind of kicking against capitalism. And then, and then all of a sudden you remember, this is a $145 million film that was co-produced by Mattel. Do not try and tell me yeah. that Mattel weren't looking over Greta and Noah's shoulders the entire time. So it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's supposed to be, it is empowering and it is interesting and it is starting, you know, important conversations. Yes. And there are some great things in this, but it just felt sometimes like it wanted to have its cake and eat it. You know, yeah. it's like, oh, Barbie's problematic. Yeah, we know that. But look, we have to honor and embrace it. And here's some kind of nice throwbacks that will make you feel all nostalgic about the toys that you played with. And it's like, no, you just said it was problematic. And, yeah. and I still feel that way, you know? So yeah. it's, it's, quite, it's, it's conflicted. Yeah, absolutely. So it's muddled in that way as well. Now, on the side of the angels, Margot Robbie <laughs> is absolutely wonderful yeah. as playing you know, the real life Barbie, she is almost the platonic form of Barbie. And what she does brilliantly as well is when Barbie has this crisis of confidence, I think she pulls that off brilliantly. And there's a hilarious scene when they enter Santa Monica Beach to the real world and they're dressed in Barbie clothes and it's hilarious. And also Ryan Gosling playing a Ken who then becomes conflicted and a bit weird is brilliant as well. So I thought the two leads were terrific in it. Oh, I agree. Um, do you remember there was a time where Amy Schumer was lined up uh, to portray Barbie? I'm not mm. sure if she ever signed on, but Margot Robbie replacing her, I'm kind of thinking, well, you know, Amy Schumer is a, is a, is a, is a great com uh, comedic actress, but Margot Robbie can do both. And, and although you'd never know it from the trailers, 
like her dramatic work here is very good. Yes. You know? And, and there, the, the final third of this film, as messy as it, as it is, there are some profoundly moving sequences. Mm-hmm. Where Absolutely. Margot Robbie is doing the best work of her career here, which I wasn't yeah. expecting. And then, you know, it's different, but in a similar sort of way, Ryan Gosling's also giving, you know, a, a top performance because he's, he's, he's embracing, we've known for years that he's quite good with comedy. He's quite good with physical comedy and he's embracing that fully here. And he's embracing, you know, the, the, the so-called himbo aspect of Ken and he's having a lot of fun. So it is a joy to watch, you know, these talented performers enjoying themselves. Um, I just wish that the things they were saying when it came to the punchlines were a little bit sharper because there is one fabulous joke. That's a weird thing to say. You know, they can have that for the poster. There's one great joke in the film, <laughs> but there's one fabulous joke in the film that involves Helen Mirren's narrator, Barbie, and the film yes. being very self-aware. And I laughed yeah. so much yeah. at that. And I just wanted the film to be as clever as that one joke, you know, mm. when it came to when it came to its humor. Um, so it is quite muddled. It is quite frustrating. It just felt like it's not quite there. You yeah. know, if we give you another six months or something and, you know, if you kind of add, put, put a bit of structure to this thing, mm-hmm. it could be extraordinary. It could be yeah. a great satire. But as yeah. it is, it's just a fine measure comedy. Yeah, it, it, it it's lacking. And, and, you know, we were talking about wanting to watch Oppenheimer again. I'm not dying to see this again. I think I've seen the sum of its parts, you know. Uh, so I, I guess we're both saying it just doesn't live up to the hype, really. So what would you say stars wise for Barbie? I think I'm going to go with three. And you know what? Mm-hmm. It could have been a four. And I would have added a four if it had done what I th- what I think everyone thought it was going to do, which is the bringing Barbie and Ken into the real world, that fish out of water aspect. When they get into the real world, you're, you're sitting there thinking, here we go. This is where things are going to get so weird. And before we know it, they're back in Barbie land. And so, you know, everything in Barbie land is, 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 is interesting too. But I thought we were getting Barbie and Ken trying to find their way in the real world for two hours. Mm. I, thought, I thought that's what it was supposed to be. Um, so yeah, that was another disappointment. It's hard is in the right place. You know, I'm glad I've seen it. And I hope that this film, you know, like Oppenheimer, gets people into cinemas. Yeah. But Oppenheimer is the better film of the two. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And I would give it three stars as well. I enjoyed it. Some really great ideas and important ideas. And and, and you feel bad, or I certainly feel bad, as a man bemoaning anything I that's do. attempting to, you know, give women a, a, a rightful place in society that they haven't traditionally had, particularly in Hollywood. But I just thought some of those ideas weren't given enough of a cinematic storytelling structure, you know? Agreed. But it gives me no pleasure to say that. So it's three stars for me and three stars from Chris Wasser for Barbie and we're giving Oppenheimer four so Oppenheimer is the champion in this week's episode of uh, Blockbuster versus Blockbuster Chris Wasser thanks a million thanks John Chris Wasser there discussing Oppenheimer and of course Barbie both of which are now in cinemas and I look forward to hearing from some of you regular cinema goers about uh, if you got to see them in the in the week ahead. They're only released this Friday, but uh, I'd love to hear from you over the week and indeed by next week, if you do indeed make it to Oppenheimer or Barbie. Up next, what's really going on with the actor strike? 
Now you're listening to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. Now, as you no doubt know, for the first time in 63 years, actors and writers are striking at the same time in Hollywood, bringing movie and TV productions to a halt. The Writers Guild has been on strike since May, and the Screen Actors Guild and the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists joined them last week. Key issues include how streaming and artificial intelligence are upending the industry affecting income and profits. To make a little more sense of this, I'm delighted to be joined now by film critic with such notable magazines as Variety and indeed Sight and Sound, Jessica Kiang. Jessica, hi, how are you? Hi, John. How's it going? This has been going on for a week and it's a hill of beans. But for instance, I lost my Killian Murphy interview because of this strike. But as I say, that is a hill of beans compared to what's going on. But it is affecting all sorts of film and TV productions. Can you just quickly, as quickly as you can, (laughs) explain what the gripe of actors is when it comes to streaming services? Right. Well, when it comes to streaming services in particular, um, uh, yeah, as you as you pointed out, these are these are linked strikes. So it's not just the actors who are on strike, but they actually the actors are joining the writers who have been on strike since May. Um, and so one of the main things that both writers and actors have in common um, is uh, this uh, um, how they get paid for residuals, which is what it's called when your TV show um, it's especially uh, relevant to TV actually. So when your TV show mm-hmm. then gets syndicated or gets picked up on a streaming service, whenever, whatever, however it, it makes its profits there, um, residuals are the, the small, very small slice of those profits that you yourself then get. Um, it was quite an eye-opener, I think, to a lot of us who are quite close to, to, to this industry to realize just how little the writers of certain of our favorite shows get when their shows go into syndication, and certainly to discover how little some of our favorite actors in our favorite shows get. Um, one of the responses that a lot of the um, SAG um, uh, members, that's the Screen Actors Guild members, or, or AFTRA rather, which is the television version, um, they uh, they took to posting um, pictures of their of their residual checks on um, on social media, and in some cases, you know, this would be a, a monthly check from a big um, studio like Universal or something like that, um, and in some cases, uh, it was as little as three cent. So that was literally wow. What basically what they're making. So it's incredibly unfair. Um, it's an incredibly unfair system, and especially has come very much under scrutiny when we are all aware of the extraordinarily inflated salaries that the CEOs of these big companies are themselves pulling in. Traditionally, I un- as I understand it, like back in the day, if you were on Family Ties or LA Law, you got residuals. Now, they may be small, but this was based on the amount of reruns and, and, and how many people watched. Whereas with streaming services like Disney and Netflix, we don't know because they don't release the figures. Exactly. There's a complete lack of transparency, which is one of the things that that um, everyone is hoping to that, that this strike will end up addressing, is that not it's not just that they don't know, you know, Know, whether or not they're getting paid fairly, they literally don't know how to measure the metric of what mm. might be fair because there is no way of telling that the streaming services from their inception have set up a very uh, weird sort of a Stygian cloud of of, um, of darkness <laughs> around around exactly how much how much people are watching these shows and around their own metrics mm. for success. 
So sometimes we discover on Netflix that something that they consider, you know, their their biggest show of the year is actually because however many million people watched less than 35 seconds of it. Um, so, you know, it's it's really until until we have an idea um, of how the streaming services are collecting their profits and how they're regarding certain properties of theirs as profitable, then we really can't make even the, the, the first steps towards creating an equitable pay environment for the writers and the actors mm-hmm. involved. And then just quickly on the AI aspect, a lot of people would have read this, but one of the main complaints seems to be that someone can literally be on a show for a day and then their image will be, you know, put through the computer, so to speak, in layman's terms, and then used till time immemorial. And that actor or actress will just be paid for one day, possibly. Or is that too simple? simplified a way of looking at it. I mean that that's that is the ultimate fear at the end of the day there there's there have been and there have been I believe uh, occasions on which clauses to do with the possible use of your image in future uh, promotions or whatever of whatever piece of, uh, of work that you're working in um, have been sort of smuggled into contracts um, in such a way that they seem quite innocuous, but actually could then lead to this to that situation that you're talking about. Um, and also from the point of view, obviously, of writers, um, uh, AI and chat GPT is an existential threat as well. Mm. So there are, there are these, um, it's more, I think, the, the, the fear of... Uh, being not just being usurped by computers, which is entirely possible. It's just, again, about a lack of transparency about when those things are going to be used. There may be some actors and there may be some uh, entire production companies that are exploring, you know, ethical ways of using uh, AI and ethical ways of using this new technology because it is going to get used one way or another. Um, it's just we don't know what those are at the moment. And again, without without a degree of transparency, there's no idea what what you're actually getting into. Yeah. And it's important to say in all this, particularly with, with things like residuals and, and AI as well. But, you know, Matt Damon, in fairness to him out this week, basically made the point, look, I'm on strike here, but I'm not sure if he said this necessarily, but he he paid tribute to the lower paid actors because acting is a lot like sport. There are Messi's and Ronaldo's in sport as there are Matt Damon's and, you know, Jennifer Lopez in acting. But the majority of actors barely make a minimum wage. So it's really those people we're, we're worried about because there might be, a, oh, actors on strike, big deal, go home to your mansion. But this is, this is a, a job for a lot of people who barely make a living. That's exactly it. And this is, I mean, this is one of the reasons that the wider world is looking at this um, dispute so closely, um, because it is actually, it's a labor dispute. This isn't some sort of rarefied thing that's going on in one corner of Hollywood yeah. and only affecting millionaires. As you say, you're completely right. I think the statistic that I read the other day is that something like less, fewer, fewer than 15%. So that's one 5% of um, SAG-AFTRA membership. And they're, they have a, a membership, a combined membership of 160,000 people. So fewer than 15% of them actually make the $25,000 a year marker, which uh, enables you to get health insurance in the United States. So mm. that's, you know, 85% of them are technically below the poverty line. So we're not absolutely not talking about the Matt Damons and the Tom Cruises, um, whose uh, support is incredibly valuable and incredibly necessary for this strike to work, to have its intended effect. 
but we are talking about those that 85% of people. I mean, not just this, and one of the things that you're that this is kind of touching on, and that is uh, quite close to a, a sort of a nerve to me, is that uh, I understand in America, certainly, there's quite a lot of negative coverage of the strike based, based on more or less what you're saying. There's a lot of people saying, well, hey, hey, it's just a bunch of millionaires. Why should I care? Where, where in fact, yeah. that's absolutely not the case. And it's... Um, uh, something that's worth mentioning is that it's that's a, a narrative that sort of anti-union narrative is one being put about by certain media outlets, and it, you just have to think in for two seconds about the fact that all of those media outlets who are putting out that that sort of anti-union rhetoric are themselves mostly owned by this very same companies that are are under threat yeah. because of this strike. So yeah, yeah. That's a very important point. And, you know, I, I, I've said it before, but Billy Joel once said musicians invented unemployment. And I think the same is true for actors. And, and that's certainly true with a lot of the actors I know. So this is very much not a thing about Hollywood stars at all. Listen, just in terms of how this, like this obviously affects Hollywood and linked productions, maybe in the UK and maybe in Ireland. But if I'm a, a jobbing actor in Ireland or the UK or Germany, and I'm not a member of SAG or the, the, the uh, TV and Radio Actors Association, I'm not compelled unless I want to take up, you know, the cause of my fellow actors across the water. I mean, in other parts of the world, people are still acting, right? They are. Um, and, you know, we're coming up on uh, fall festival season, which is yeah. going to be a big, um, a big test, a big uh, a test of what's going to happen during this period when actors cannot travel to promote their um, their stuff. Now, the first big festival that's coming up is Locarno. And Locarno, because it's traditionally more dedicated to European and worldwide film, is not going to be as affected as, say, Venice, which is happening a couple of weeks afterwards, which always has big US premieres and the, the big stars in town to promote those premieres. So for for the for the people that you're talking about for the for the people who work in in Ireland who are not members of SAG of course there's there's absolute they're under absolutely no obligation to down tools um i think a mm. lot of them a lot of them have been asked to not work on us productions that are being directly yeah. affected by the strike because that would could be regarded as crossing a picket line so it also puts undue and you know very unfair pressure actually on a lot of uh, people who are actually uh, very far away from from the center of of this particular piece of industrial action, but who themselves might be feeling like an ethical quandary about whether or not they should be working on certain projects because they do not want to be seen to be and, and indeed do not want to be uh, strike breakers or crossing that picket line. Yeah. So it's I mean it's an incredibly difficult. Uh, position for so many people to be put in and that's the reason that strikes eventually hopefully work is because they, ha they have to be inconvenient they have to cause a little bit of pain what is um, unacceptable to my mind certainly are some of the quotes that we have heard from from the leaders of the um, AMPTP which is the the main producers arm which is uh, against I suppose which is the, the the ones with whom the talks have broken down and led to this strike um, basically saying that they are, you know, rich enough, the these are the representatives of the major studios, that they're rich enough to be able to sit back and wait until people start to lose their houses. So um, that mm. kind of uh, a really inflated and, and heated rhetoric, which has uh, caused a great deal of anger, has certainly led not just, I think, to the sort of increased ill feeling on both sides of this strike, but sort of to a digging in of the heels. 
Um, I certainly haven't heard mm. the actual um, uh, some of the actors and like Fran Drescher, for example, who is the president of SAG, you know, has really yeah. come out with some really firebrand words which are needed. But it does make me think that this uh, that we're going to be probably in for the kind of the long haul here. It doesn't seem to be like there's a solution around the corner. Yeah, well, that's where I wanted to finish with you because my feeling on it last week, and you know a lot more about it than I do, but my feeling on it last week was the fact that it is causing the stopping of productions. I would have thought the studios would have, you know, gone to the table very quickly because the last thing they want to be is not in production. But that doesn't seem to be the case. So, I mean, you've kind of partially answered this, but Mm -hmm. this is clearly going to run for a good while yet, right? I mean, this was the thing. I, I was much of the same opinion as you uh, until quite recently. Um, and certainly when when the actors first joined the writers on strike, I thought, well, this is going to have to call an end to it because whatever about writers, Hollywood has traditionally always sort of uh, downgraded and marginalized writers. And the Writers Guild only represents about 11,500 people. Um, but as soon mm. as the actors joined it and the actors, including the stars, including the cash cows of Hollywood, yeah. as soon as they joined it, I thought, well, yeah. this is going to force the studios to come to the table. But actually, it seems to not be working out that way. And I think, you know, we can look back at the previous, like even the writer's strike that happened in 2007 and 2008, and um, the knock-on effects that that had, and that was only a writer's strike, and that had serious knock-on effects, not just in terms of, uh, you know, people's attendance and people finding new ways to get their entertainments at a time when we really can't afford for that to happen. But also in terms of the quality of the products that came out a couple of years after that, it's famously uh, Quantum of Solace was one of those uh, films that was regarded as incredibly compromised because it had to be partially finished during mm-hmm. the writer's strike. So the longer that this goes on, the the more it is going to have deleterious effects for like for for the future going on for for many years to come in fact um and yeah. i i would have hoped that the actors uh joining in would have done something to shorten that strike but i i'm not sure that it necessarily has well listen i'm sorry to end on such a <laughs> non-sanguine note but uh, it is fascinating to talk to you and there is distance left to run in this jessica kiang thank you very much thank you john take care Jessica Kiang there of Variety and Sight and Sound and the New York Times and all sorts of places talking about the rather troubling situation with the actor strike uh, and what and what it could possibly mean for productions and indeed actors' lives in the coming weeks and possibly months. But let's keep an eye. Up next, the emotional journey of the Irish women's soccer team to Australia. Now, this week in TV, I was watching this. She came to me and she said, Vera, if you put me on, I'll do it for you. As I left the bench, one of them shouted, do it for Donegal. That never left my head for the, for the next 30 minutes. I just remember Neefah, he just heading the ball clear. She's crushing it down to the knees. As soon as she got the ball, I was gone. It was the best pass in Denise's career. And Barrett's giving herself a chance here. Go on, Amber. Go on. Amber Barrett in on goal. Amber Barrett yes. makes the win too. 
That was sheer brilliance from Amber Barrett. Now that was one of the glorious moments, perhaps that's the most glorious though, where Amber Barrett qualified the Irish women's soccer team for the World Cup, which started this very week. It's one of the many moments that have me very emotional in a great documentary on RTE this week called The Row Down Under, which details the pretty incredible journey of the Irish women's team over the last four or five years. It's directed by the man the nation seems to call on when we need a sports documentary. Ross Whitaker has done brilliant documentaries previously on everyone from Katie Taylor to Shane Lowry and even Muhammad Ali. The Row Down Under was a great watch and Ross joins me now. Ross, how are you? Hiya, John. How's it going? Very well. So listen, you know, I'm sure people say this to you all the time and you were probably the same, but like I have vivid memories of Italia 90 being in the Gale Talked, watching all those matches, 94, the same thing, even 2002, there are just indelibly and will always be in my memory, the drama, the emotions, the joy. And it seems such a shame to me watching your great documentary that this story, which is pregnant with emotion and drama and, and lots of moments that had me crying, to be quite honest. It's such a shame that we don't, or I certainly, and I think a lot of people don't know the story of the Irish team in the last four or five years. So I'm guessing that's probably partly why you wanted to do this. Yeah, absolutely. That's a huge part of the reason. And that's one of the reasons why it is an interesting story, because it's an untold story. And I suppose a lot of the things that have happened to the team have been because they didn't have the attention that they probably deserved. And and, and they've been progressing. They've been getting better. They've had some phenomenal results. Um, and they've had some, as you know, phenomenal low points as well. So all, all that adds up, I think, to, to a pretty compelling story to cram into 50 minutes of television. Yeah, uh, and crammed it in, you did, but it, it didn't feel rushed. Just to go back to... The, I hate to start with a negative, but Ukraine, like I hadn't realized this. We came desperately close to qualifying for the Euros in 2021, as it was with COVID and all that, and in an empty stadium. And there is just a horrible sporting moment where a, an own goal happens. Will you just remind people or tell people what happened then? Yeah, well, I suppose in the build up to the Euros, that was, you know, a couple of years ago. Um, we came down to essentially the last competitive game of the group for us, which was against Ukraine, the key game. And a draw or a win in that game was going to take us into a playoff. We were playing really well at the time. It was during COVID, so I suppose it was under the radar a bit. But uh, what happened was we scored a kind of really unfortunate own goal. Uh, we had to score a goal to try and get back into the game again. A draw would have been fine for us. And then we were awarded a penalty. And Katie McCabe, who simply never misses penalties, hits the bar and it yeah. was the most crushing way to go out and, and also because and the funny thing is I actually wanted to make a documentary back then because the Euros were in England and yeah. you know how incredible it would have been for an Irish team to be in a, a championship just across the water and what that would have meant in terms of coverage you know the time zones are right people can head over on the ferry or, or a short flight so that was the one I suppose the one that got away for them and mm. and it was kind of I suppose they lost out in such a crushing way now that they've made it we can look back on that point as, as probably a moment that helped to galvanize them and so on and so forth but at the yeah. time it felt like the one that got away and and maybe the big opportunity missed yeah and it certainly felt that way and there's and they all come together on the pitch oh it's beautiful I not to get into this no one wants to hear me cry but I'm not joking you I like there were so many times I was crying watching this Tuesday morning after I got my eyes on it was it an emotional for you to make 
Yeah, it was, you know, and, and it's it was really, really special, John, because I interviewed, I guess, 10, 11 of the team as sort of the spokespeople of the, of the team. Mm. And the interviews were just so honest and heartfelt and kind of immediate and direct talking to these women. And I suppose giving them the space to tell their s- stories, each one of them was emotional, you know, and, and when people are being just so honest in front of camera and talking to you and looking you in the eyes and telling their stories mm. so honestly, it's actually a very emotional experience. And, and all of the interviews went on for about an hour each, which is probably longer than you'd normally do. Vera's interview was a couple of hours. Like it was just, I suppose, an opportunity for them to tell their story. And, and a couple of them said to me, you know, we never thought anyone would want to make a documentary about us. You know, and they're kind of delighted to to have had one made about them, I suppose, to have their story told. Because a couple of years ago, almost as we've said, not that many people were interested. Yeah. And you you kind of kick things off uh, in one of the bits at the start of montage of I think it's the solicitor or, or certainly a legal representative or a representative of the women's football team who were striking at the time. And he says this, you know, pretty poignant phrase about you know the foot the uh, irish women's football team aren't even or are just the dirt on the fai shoe and they go on strike and one thing i hadn't realized and it's brilliant is the players basically say to the fai you know get behind us and we're gonna go somewhere and like by god they did like they had such belief even at that stage yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? And, and yeah. I suppose they knew they had some good players and they had done quite well at underage level. We got to uh, Euros semi-final at under-19 level. Katie McCabe was one of the stars of that team and a few other members of that team are in the current squad. So they'd had some success. And I suppose they were thinking, they're looking at some of the people that they would have probably beaten in some of those tournaments and seeing them go on to be supported in their own countries and maybe go on to qualify at senior level for things. So they knew that they had ability um, and they looked around them and, and they could see the game was taking off in other countries and they were being left behind. So look, and they were being treated so badly and I suppose just ignored to a certain extent at that time that they had to do something. And in fairness to the FAI, they backed them. You know, they did get behind yeah. them. They realised and the pressure then was back on the team to kind of live up to what they had said about themselves and, and go and qualify for something which eventually they did in, in fine style. They sure did. They sure did. And listen, you know, people will know Vera Pau went public on a tragic and horrific incident when she was raped uh, a long time ago when she played for her national team, the Netherlands or, or Holland. And you know, people were aware of that. But what comes across in your documentary is she felt very held by the Irish footballing community, it, it, it seems. Did that come across to you? That's the way the documentary presents it, that she really, not that she felt Irish after it, but there was huge support for her from all walks of Irish life, it seems. Yeah, and I suppose in the documentary, what she says is the warmth of the Irish people helped her get through it and, and made her want to deliver something for Ireland, which is just, mm. I mean, an amazing part of the story. What yeah. we didn't get to include, and, and as I said earlier, we were trying to cram everything into this one-hour documentary, was that she didn't feel the same support at home. And I think that made it even more touching for her that the Irish people were getting behind her. And, and they have, I suppose. And over the last couple of years, the audiences on television for their matches have grown. The understanding of who these key personalities are, like Vera Powell and, and Katie McCabe and Denise O'Sullivan and other brilliant members of the squad. So the nation has kind of taken these people um, into their arms to a certain mm. extent. And, and then when you know Vera opened up about what had happened to her, um, 
so point, poignantly then people really got behind her and she, she was sent hundreds of, of tweets and messages and stuff like that and it really did move her and and again I think it, it's probably something that brought that group closer together and, and yeah. helped push them on. Yeah, and the tightness of the group is, again, it's just beautiful to observe. Now, you talked to all the players and we heard Amber Barrett's goal there. You know, I, I, I'm not sure if I'd, I'd forgotten, but just I hadn't realised just the emotion of her scoring that night. It wasn't that long after Kreeshlock. Her mother is from Kreeshlock. After she scores the goal, she kisses the black armband. It is just spine-tinglingly emotional. I mean, that must, I know you've said the whole thing was emotional for you, but like putting all that bit together, it, it's just heartbreaking and joyous in equal measure. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I'm just the person that tries to put the story on screen. No, I know. Those moments are all in there. And, and um, yeah, I mean, I can't, I must have seen the doc 30 times, you know, that's yeah. the process of editing, as you know, and, and you watch it so many times to, to try and make sure that you're telling the story well. And every time I watch that, I, I, I cry. I, I cried last night watching on, on telly as well. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and um, yeah, so it, it's it's super emotional. And, and it's just, I suppose, another one of a group of moments in the film that you really feel when you're making it help you to build a story that, that has that kind of those powerful elements to it. So, yeah, but it, that in particular, I mean, it's only a few days later. The timing is just I know. insane and horrendous for, for Amber. Um and she didn't even feel like playing football. But then another part of her said, well, look, if I get the chance, I'm going to be the one that, that makes a difference here. And yeah. That's exactly what she did. Like, was, I'm actually getting emotional now talking about it. No, I know. <laughs> it, was, I... it was incredible, you know, and, and you, as Katie McCabe says in the documentary, you couldn't write it. Like, it's, it's, it, is, it is one of those, that's a cliche, but it absolutely is one of those moments. Yeah, and that's what I was saying at, at the start of it. This story of, of the last five years is full of those kind of dramatic moments of real life that there's such a story here that I, I don't think a lot of people are aware of. Another thing, and I'm sure people have mentioned this to you, and it, it's apparent in the documentary, but this group of players, like, these are not you know, Ronaldo smashing the phone of a fan. These are people who seem to sign autographs all night long. So Many of them, or a few of them anyway, are openly gay and proud. I mean, it's a bit cliched, but they seem like such role models for a generation of young sports people, both male and female, girls and boys. Like, are they, are they that decent people that they seem in your documentary? They really are. And I suppose, you, you know, I kind of alluded to it, but a good few years ago, I tried to make something with them before it didn't work mm. out. But back then, you know, connected with a, a few of the players and, and just had, got to acquaint myself with them and immediately realized, wow, these are really special people. And I think part of it is, you know, nothing has come to them easily. And, and that humility is, you know, probably, if any of us have it, you know, it, it probably makes for, for a very character building um humbling stuff that makes people into good people you know and yeah. they've been through a lot you know i mean the journey of just being a gay person in ireland in in the last 20 30 years it's improved a lot but it hasn't been easy for people so like that's a journey trying to be a, a female professional footballer in a sport that hardly yeah. existed like th that's a huge effort for people so like i think all of that is, has built these people into amazing characters and and they take on that role um, very consciously. I mean, some of it's unconscious, but I think very consciously mm. have decided we are going to be good role models and we are going to connect with our fans and we're going to do everything we can 
um, to make the path of the people that follow us easier. And I think to me, that's one of the strongest and most important points is they've gone through this experience and there won't be another team that has to go through this. And that's because of this team. Yeah. Like, they did all the hard yards. The next group to come through will be able to probably play their sport in, in a much more conventional way that men have been able to for years. Um, and to me, that's like the, the greatest credit to them is they didn't back off that challenge. They, they, they kind of faced up to it and they changed everything. And to me, they're one of the most, I suppose, fascinating Irish sports teams because of what they've done off the field as uh, well as on it, you know. Yeah, and, and whoever comes after this will be standing on their giant shoulders, it's fair to say. Listen, you know, I turned off my computer and went down uh, Thursday morning and watched the match, uh, you know, like, like I did back in Italia 90. Like, it's just great. Unfortunately... We lost, but I mean, it's only one game. We were chatting beforehand. You're better on this kind of stuff than I am, but but a draw and a win or even one win could conceivably get us into the next round, right? Like, I mean, it's by no means over. No, and look, I'm no football pundit, so I think it's going to pinch us off. But, you know, one thing about this team is they've often come up with incredible results against the odds. Um, yeah. It's part of who they are. They're not afraid of anyone. The match... Um, they could easily have got a, a draw or a win out of that game in, in the circumstances. And that's against a team that are kind of rated much more highly than them. So I think there's all to play for. Uh, it's a tournament. Funny things happen in, in mm. tournaments. And they'll, if anyone wants it, they want it more than anyone. So yeah. I, I, I really hope that they get at least one good result in the, in the next two games. And, and with a little bit of luck or, you know, with the ball just falling the right way, like in some of the, the moments in, in the match against Australia, you know, they're small margins, I suppose, and, and at yeah. this stage of the tournament. And you'd love to see them just push it on for, for one more round. And, and I think what that does is it gets the nation behind you. It just kind of gathers more and more people around the television. And uh, the more people can kind of get to know this team, like it, it, they're, they're just so likable and yeah. so followable that um, it'll only be great for the future because, you know, I think they're going to continue to do well. There's a lot of young, really good young players in Ireland and, you know, there's another qualifying campaign coming up and so on and, and it's getting yeah. harder and harder to get tickets for their matches and so on. So there's, something, <laughs> there's something building there, you know, and, and I yeah. think this tournament and, and the focus on them is, is definitely a big part of that. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, he's staking his entire career on them qualifying. I'm joking, of course. The documentary we've been discussing is a truly emotional and, and joyous, in equal measure, uh, piece of TV called The Road Down Under. I haven't checked, but I'm assuming it's there on the RTE player. Why wouldn't it be? Do check it out. I've been talking to the great Ross Whitaker. Ross, thanks a million. Oh, you're very good, John. Thanks a million. That was Ross Whitaker talking to me about his wonderful new documentary, The Road Down Under, and do check it out. And as was evident from our chat, that is a very emotional documentary in places. That is it for this week. Next week, I'm going to be looking at a new book all about the philosophy of cinema. Fascinating stuff with the great... Richard Carney, uh, Jerk Gilroy of Off the Ball will be discussing his favourite movie. So more fun and games in the world of cinema and TV next week. In the meantime, I will just remind you, this show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on Newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm here on Newstalk. Get in touch with me at any stage during the week. John underscore Farley is my Twitter handle or you can email me screentime at Newstalk.com. As I 
said earlier in the show, if you do make it to the cinema to see Oppenheimer or indeed Barbie, do let me know. Drop me a line or a tweet and uh, I will gladly receive your own private review of those two blockbusters. Thank you for listening. Thanks to Anne-Marie Kane who helped out on the show and I will talk to you next week. Enjoy the remainder of your weekend.